0: So, hello and welcome to this Winkworth Sherwood podcast on lasting powers of attorney. My name is Samantha Warner and I'm an associate solicitor in the private client team here at Winkworth Sherwood. And I'm joined here today by two other members of the team partner Tim Snaith and solicitor Alice Edwards. In the last 12 to 18 months or so, we have seen unprecedented interest in lasting powers of attorney, both amongst our own clients and in the media. In many ways, this is no surprise. We have an aging population. Banks and other organizations have really tightened up their procedures for third parties, access accounts, and that kind of thing. Um, And of course, also, there's been the the pandemic. With the pandemic, there's been um, two main problems, really. The the elderly and vulnerable have been shielding um, and advised to stay at home. um, Or many have been afraid to leave their homes. and on the other, the other side of that is that family members have not been able to visit and help out as they may have done in the past. So when we talk to clients about lasting powers of attorney, um, which we'll probably all refer to as LPAs from, from here on in, um, there, are, there are lots of common themes that come up. So we thought we'd just talk through uh, just some of those today. Um, Alice, would you like to start us off? I think obviously the most common question is, you know, I've heard about LPAs. Um, but what are they? And for, for those who've heard that there are two types, what are the difference between the two?
1: Thanks, Sam. So any power of attorney basically involves giving somebody else the power to make a decision on your behalf. What makes a lasting power of attorney different from an ordinary power of attorney is that it lasts, hence the name, even if you lose mental capacity. So it's basically a document that you can put in place while you do have mental capacity, You register it with the Office of the Public Guardian, which is a necessary step, and it will basically sit there until you need it. You can revoke it, but essentially it's there as a sort of safety net for if you do lose mental capacity. Um, As you mentioned, there are two types of lasting power of attorney, uh, and they are quite separate. So they basically deal with the two fundamental aspects of your life in which you might need decisions to be made for you at some stage. The Property and Financial Affairs LPA deals with decisions on sort of day-to-day financial matters, so as evidenced by the name, like taxes, bills, dealing with your bank accounts and investments, receiving your pension, and potentially dealing with the sort of financial aspects of any property that you own. The Health and Welfare LPA deals with decisions on your medical care, on your daily routine, so for example if you get to the stage where you need it, the LPA might govern your um, sort of day-to-day care needs in terms of washing yourself, dressing yourself, your diet, um, and also potentially where you live, whether that's in a hospital or in your own home, or if you need to go into a care home. As well as the difference in kind of um, the subject matter of the LPAs, there's also a bit of a technical difference in terms of when they can be used. So your health and welfare LPA once it's registered with the public Office of the Public Guardian, can only be used when or if you lose mental capacity. So nobody can take decisions over your medical care while you still have capacity to make those decisions yourself. Um, in contrast, for the Property and Financial Affairs LPA, you can either run it in the same way as your Health and Welfare LPA, so it can say that it can only be used when you lose mental capacity, or you have the option... Um, To have it sort of able to be used as soon as it's been registered with the Office of the Public Guardian. So this can actually be quite useful if you're on holiday, for example, and you need a document signed in respect of a property that you're dealing with, then you can actually ask your attorney to deal with that for you. It also avoids the sort of grey area that we're going to come on to talk to probably in a minute um, about the, the stage where you might have mental capacity, you might not. It's quite hard to tell. So having the sort of catch-all in place where your uh, LPA can be used at any point basically avoids the need to sort of constantly make that decision. On the flip side, you're obviously putting a great deal of sort of trust and giving a lot of power to your attorney. And so giving them, for example, access to your bank accounts from day one does require a sort of certain level of thought before you're willing to, to take that
0: step. I mean, it sounds like key to these documents are the other are people that you appoint the, who are called attorneys under the under the documents. Um, Tim, would you like to talk a, a bit about attorneys? Um, I think people do often ask, don't they, who should they appoint and whether that should be family members or friends or would you like to t- talk, us, talk us through attorneys?
2: Happy to. Um, I think the important thing to say about attorneys is the first point is there isn't a right answer. Um, there is no one-size-fits-all solution. And that links heavily into the second point, which is a badly drafted power of attorney is as dangerous, if not more dangerous, or more problematic as not having one at all, in that you've got to think really carefully about who you want to appoint as your attorneys, because you're giving them hugely broad powers, as Alice is just taking you through, to make decisions about, all manner of things, not only your health and welfare, but also you know, that wide range of your property and financial affairs. And so careful thought needs to be given who, you know, who should be appointed. Now, in a you know, very nuclear family type setup of, of let's call it husband, wife, and two children. And husband and wife are in their 60s children are in their mid to late 20s it's quite straightforward often that husband and wife will appoint each other and then they'll appoint the two children as replacements that's really quite straightforward and quite simple but even behind that one just needs to be thinking about how do the children get on do they get on well or are they going to war with each other you know to what extent do we trust them Um, all of those things come into play and more often than not these things work brilliantly but it does just take a little bit of time and thought to make sure you've got the right solution. And ultimately, it, you know, if it's not a clear answer when it comes to families, we can usually find the right solution of a mix, whether it's children, close friends, or, or the wider family, or you know, at, at perhaps the far end, sometimes it's professionals as well, getting them involved. Um, so, as I say, important to remember there isn't a right answer. And really important to think it through and think through the implications. Don't just think straight away, I'll appoint my children. Think it through actually how these powers would work in practice if they needed to be actioned.
0: And Tim, you've said that the powers that um people give to their attorneys are very broad. Alice, we often get asked if um if those powers should be restricted. What would you typically advise? Absolutely. There is space in the LPA forms themselves for you to give
1: specific instructions to your attorneys. So these basically limit the sort of very wide powers that the LPAs give your attorneys by their nature. So, um, for example, you could give an instruction that your attorneys mustn't sell your home under any circumstances. Or alternatively, if you want to, you could put that slightly more softly and it express it as a preference so say I would prefer that my attorneys don't sell my house unless it becomes financially unavoidable Um, obviously both of these both instructions and setting preferences for your attorneys do potentially limit the usefulness of your LPA so just going back to that example of, of selling your house if you've said that your attorneys mustn't do it then if it comes a number of years down the line when they financially are in a position where they really have to sell your house. So if, it, you know, you need to release cash for care home fees, then you've put them in a really difficult position if, if you've given an instruction that limits their discretion to such a kind of large extent. Obviously, as well as these instructions and preferences in the LPA form, there's absolutely nothing to stop you kind of having conversations with your attorneys before, you know, long before the stage when they need to come into effect. Your attorney's duty is to act in your best interest, but obviously, as part of their thought process, they will be considering what you would have done or what you would have liked to do if you did have mental capacity. So having conversations about things like where you'd like to live, the type of care you'd like to receive is certainly really helpful when they come to have to make those decisions down the line.
0: I always find that uh, letters of wishes can be helpful as well. If mm. if you're not able to have that conversation with your attorneys um, or if you're just not ready to have those conversations, just writing down your wishes can be really helpful when, when a difficult decision needs to be made. Yeah, absolutely. I mean,
2: it's, that's sort of what the, the powers were when they changed from enduring powers, the pre-2007 system, to lasting powers, that, that's, that was a huge thrust of, of the legislation and the, and the reason behind the change was this more collaborative approach, this idea of working with your attorneys as opposed to that's it, you've lost capacity and now someone else takes over. Because we all know capacity, it, it's not binary, it's not black or white, or it's very rarely black or white, it's more often than not. It's, it's very much a grey a area. Um, but anyway, I'm sure that's something we'll, we'll come on to touch on in a little bit.
0: We could, we could go on to that now, if you like. What happens if your attorneys are struggling to, to determine if you've got mental capacity? And what does, what does it even mean mental capacity? How, how do they make that decision?
2: I mean, it's it's a really tricky question. Um, because, as I said a moment ago, capacity is rarely um, binary. I.e., When we talk about capacity, so I'm talking about the loss of mental capacity. Um, and the, the reason being that, as, as we now know, and, and, you know, medicine's come on such a long way from when these sorts of things were first thought about, you know, first legislation in the early 1900s, of it's all action specific. I'm, I may not have capacity to write a will, um, but I may have capacity to make a cup of tea, two very different exercises, but, but both still require certain levels of thought and certain levels of understanding. For example, if I pick on a cup of tea, you know, you've got to have the understanding of that you're making a thing with boiling water and you might pour the water on your hand. Um, Each one of those actions needs to be considered. And so each step where an attorney is being asked to potentially make a decision for the donor, you have to look at the question in hand. Um, And therefore, you're there to support the donor in their decision making as opposed to just straight up making the decision for them. One of the areas we, we get asked a lot of questions at the moment is, is the rather unfortunate phase of a cognitive disease like dementia or Alzheimer's, where the donor is in, is in a phase where they are in significant decline, but where they're not deemed to have lost capacity full stop and where they may actually have very, very strong views on what they want to happen. Just because it's an unwise decision doesn't make it a wrong decision, if that makes sense. And you as an attorney may have a very different view. And so working with your donor as an attorney in those sorts of scenarios can be very tricky. Um, and unfortunately, there isn't a there isn't a, a simple answer to that. And, and I fear it's with an ageing population. It's, it's, we're going to continue to see lots of questions about it. But if we go back to the beginning of, of this podcast. What powers of attorney do is allow someone to stand there alongside you to help you make those decisions. Because in the absence of it, it's the court of protection that has to get involved. And, and where you involve the court of protection, A, it's very expensive. B, it's very time-consuming um, and all the other things that go with it. So if you've got trusted loved ones around you to act as an attorney or indeed professionals um, in, in certain circumstances, it, it can save an awful lot of, of you know, difficulty and administration at a time where you really don't want it.
0: Absolutely. Um, what you've touched on there is that we we said we're going to talk in this podcast about questions that are frequently asked by those making powers of attorney, but we're very often approached as well, aren't we, by the attorneys themselves when they're struggling to, to make decisions. Um, and one of the other common questions that attorneys ask us is whether they can still make, um, whether they can make gifts on behalf of the donor. Um, Again, when the the person's making the power of attorney, that often comes up and they say they want to make, make sure that school fees are paid or that the birthday presents are given. These are wide powers. Alice, what would you say to attorneys asking that question? Are they allowed to make gifts on behalf of the donor? Well,
1: it's actually a really important decision to give some thought to because the Office of the Public Guardian has very strict rules about gift giving probably because it is an area where there is the potential for attorneys to really run wild and abuse their position. And, you know, we can all see stories in the papers every day of where attorneys have decided to make gifts, in inverted commas, from the donor to to the attorney or to the attorney's friends or family. It's obviously a massive temptation when the attorney has access to somebody's bank account who may not be able to kind of keep an eye on it themselves. So for that reason, as I say, the OPG has really strict rules. Um, it's important to note, actually Sam just as you mentioned gift giving is quite wide as defined by the OPG in this context so it does include things like paying school fees, creating a trust for grandchildren or even lending money to family members interest free and that's one that people often do get caught out on. Um, The general rule is that you can't make gifts uh, full stop but there is an exception as long as it fulfills three conditions and it has to 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 meet all of these so basically the gift needs to be what's called customary so given on you know a birthday or christmas or another religious festival it needs to be a gift to a family member or to a friend of the of the donor or um or to charity so there's no way that your attorney should be giving a gift to somebody that that you don't know yourself um and it also needs to be reasonable in value and here it's really important that the attorney thinks about kind of the context of, of that person's situation so one of a sort of classic example here is a grandparent who may have in the past given really generous gifts to their grandchildren um, but now you know if they're sitting there with just a couple of thousand pounds in their bank account and they've got high sort of ongoing care costs for themselves then it's obviously not in their best interests for them to be giving or continuing to give really generous gifts to their grandchildren um, and that's, that's because it's really, as we've, we've touched on, but it's the attorney's duty is to act in, in the best interest of the donor and, and not just think, you know, what would they have wanted? Because, of course, in, in this situation, the grandparent may have loved to give a really generous birthday present to their granddaughter, but really, if they can't afford it, given the sort of context of, of their own needs, then, then the attorney shouldn't be doing it. And if the gift basically doesn't fulfil those conditions, then the attorney needs to apply to the Court of Protection before giving a gift. So, so, yeah, very strict rules.
0: Absolutely. Going back to the beginning in a way now, these these are very wide powers, but we'd always advise our clients to put lasting powers of attorney in place. Now, famously, Denzel Lush, former court of protection judge in 2017, said he wouldn't put an LPA in place himself um, because he'd seen the devastating effect on family, family relationships from LPAs. Tim, um, could you talk a bit about about Den- uh, Denzel Lush's comments and and a bit about the risks involved in creating an LPA?
2: Sure. Uh, I mean, I think the first thing to say is, and exactly as you touched on, they are really useful documents, and our advice is that if prepared well and properly, they are invaluable. Um, I can't speak to what you know what Denzel Lush saw in his in his pretty illustrious career as as a judge and, and as head of court head of the Court of Protection, but he certainly saw the other side of the coin that perhaps we see um, in that he saw where the abuse had happened um, and where people perhaps had made the wrong decision in who they appointed as their attorneys. And as I said at the beginning, you can create an awful lot of problems in appointing the wrong attorney. Um, and that's certainly what he saw. Um, and as I just said, you know, giving the power to an unscrupulous attorney, um, you're giving them the power to empty out your bank account. And I mean, there are all sorts of pretty terrible tales of attorneys buying watches, laptops, cars, all with spurious reasons like, oh, well, I needed to be able to tell the time so I could go and see the donor or I needed to get to the donor's house really quickly. Um, you know, all the nonsense. And, and the key point is an attorney has to operate these powers in your best interests as a as a donor, and that can't ever be forgotten. But if I can counter it, if I may, it's pretty rare that we see in practice those sorts of issues where someone has taken the time to really think about who they should appoint and taking good advice at the same time. So there are risks, undoubtedly, that there are risks in many things that we do. I still believe those are heavily outweighed by the benefits and the benefits being that in a, in a trusted relationship between attorney and donor in the event of your loss of mental capacity, you've got the the structure and the matrix there all set up ready oven baked to go just at a time when you need it, as opposed to having to turn the court of protection at a time where you're already stressed or rather your loved ones are stressed, and, and trying to focus on your well-being and welfare. Um, and they're also having to deal with an application to the Court of Protection or, or potentially even a, a, an urgent application to the Court of Protection to get something, get a decision made or otherwise. So I'm very much in favour of putting powers of attorney in place, but only with the right advice. Um, and I think that's the crucial, the crucial ingredient. Um, be- beware... And the, the badly drafted LPA just as beware the badly drafted will all of these things can create huge problems and very expensive problems but well drafted and well considered they can solve an awful lot of problems as well
0: absolutely they're invaluable aren't they well thank you Tim and thank you Alice uh, that brings this podcast to an end if any of our listeners are interested in putting LPAs in place, uh, please do get in touch with uh, one of the team here at Winkworth Sherwood. Uh, the email address, if you're interested, is marketing at um, And thank you for listening.